So what do we do with 2 Kings 8, 9? We didn't read all of 9 and all of 10. We'll talk a little bit about that. But what do we do? My call to us this morning is that we trust it, which, which means we don't pretend that it's something that it's not. And that we don't, like, look through a lens of sentimentality at this text or separation of this text. I'm going to talk about what that means. This isn't always easy for us in our modern ears, by the way. Now, Elisha, in this, these two texts, is kingmaker. He is, he's the man of God, and as kingmaker, he is acting as agitator and anointer. In the first anointing in chapter 8, we see that Elijah's reputation precedes him. It extends to Ben-Hadad, to the Gentiles in Syria and Damascus. Now, this is the second time Elisha crosses the Jordan in his narrative. The first time is when he receives the mantle, the calling of Elijah. And just as, uh, at, at, as at that point, he, he crosses back over the, uh, the Jordan and what? He enacts judgment on the young prophets of Baal, sends a bear to attack them, right? As he crosses the Jordan this time, the text wants us to know that this is a sign of coming judgment, both to the people of Israel, to Ahab and his generation, and to, later on down the road, to Syria. So he follows the instructions of Elisha, which is interesting, right? So Elijah is the first one that's told about this. We'll talk about that in a second. But he follows the instructions of Elijah by telling Hazael that he will be king. Now, does this make him? Now, think about this for a second. Now, sit into this. Like, Elisha is Israel. And he's anointing king to the enemy of Israel. And, and by his anointing, he is going to unleash judgment upon Israel through this Syrian king. Does it make him a traitor? The, the prophet of God is also a prophet to Israel. And here he's giving aid to a foreign enemy. Now Haziel here is representative to his king. He is seeking a word. Ben-Hadad lies sick, dying. He wants to know if he will live. Ben-Hadad knows that there's a God in Israel, so he inquires of the man of God. He sends Haziel and his 40 camels of gifts to the man of God. And what does he hear? You will recover. Now is this true? Is Elisha telling Haziel to lie? Now, the Hebrew reads literally like this, Say not living, you shall live, and Yahweh show me that dying, he shall die. If the not negates the whole phrase, then Elisha instructs Haziel to tell the king he will surely not live. So there's confusion here even in our translation. Haziel chooses to hear Elisha's words as an instruction to life, Say to him, living, you shall live. And what else? Elijah says, well, I want to hold off on the first part in verses 11 and 12. But Elijah says to Hazael, the Lord has shown to me that you will be king of Syria. Elijah is the first Israelite prophet to anoint a Gentile king. And that king will do deplorable things to Israel. 
Let's sit into that for a second because it's not, it's, it shouldn't be easy for us to like run by that. So Hazael returns to Syria, tells the king, you will recover. The king lets out a sigh of relief and then that night he is murdered in his bed with his own bed sheets by Hazael. Now ambition and sin make Hazael king. Elisha's words speak to his heart. His own heart sins and does the deed. But there is a playing out here of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, right? Haziel is and will be held accountable for his actions, his murderous actions. And he will be held held accountable by God for them. And also what he does to Israel. But even in these misdeeds, these murderous deeds... God is going to accomplish his purposes. Now hold on to that for our last point. Now, what I want you to see, there is no like sentimentality or Pollyanna Pollyanna pretending about this text. Now what is happening at this time in Israel's story? Like these aren't the darkest days. Like it seems in Israel, in the northern kingdom, like something new is happening. There's renewal happening. Jehoram, the current king, is the best of the descendants of Ahab as king. He has at least responded to Elijah. We see that in chapter 3 and 6, where he releases the Syrian army, once blind, back to their king and land. He allows the sons of the prophets to flourish, to build a house, to live without fear. So why now? Why is this happening now? Maybe you've been there. Like in this place where like suddenly you, 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 you sense God's presence in your life and, and you're growing and things seem good. And then comes like a trial, tribulation, difficulty. Why now? Well, first, the Lord is faithful to his word. He delivered words to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. We read these weeks ago in the fall. Remember those words? I'm sure you don't, but I'll remind you what they were. Remember, Elijah's hiding in the cave. He's on the run from Ahab and Jezebel. We we read that even he like lodged himself in the cave to protect himself. So he's living in this like small, tiny section of the cave, afraid And the Lord comes to him. And Elijah tells the Lord, I've been jealous for you, Lord. I've confronted the wicked idolatry of your people. I've confronted their worship of Baal. And now I'm all alone. And and Jezebel and Ahab and everyone else is seeking to kill me. And, And God says, go outside the cave, Elijah. And the Lord passes by him. And and the wind comes and tears the rocks. And and then there's an earthquake and and a fire. And in each time, the Lord says, I'm not in the wind, I'm I'm not in the earthquake, I'm not in the fire. All ways that God has shown up for his people in the past, by the way. And then the still small voice of Yahweh comes to Elijah. And Elijah covers his voice, and, and the voice says what? Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. 
And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all knees that have not bound to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Interesting, right? Like, like none of that happens fast. And, and it kind of goes backwards. Elisha's the one that's anointed first. And we're still waiting for these two events as we arrive in our text. And Elisha's had this ministry of life. Like he feeds the hungry, he raises the dead, he assists widow in their distress, he delivers orphans from slavery, he prepares a feast for enemies and sends them home, right, with, with leftovers. It's a ministry of life. But what the text wants you to know, what God wants you to know, it's not just that. It's also a ministry of judgment. Like Elisha destabilizes Israel. By giving life and freedom to the poor, the faithful poor, by laying down his life for the sons of the prophets, by healing and raising the dead, and baptizing enemies and feeding them at his table, he's upsetting the ways of the world and the hierarchies of Israel. His ministry of life does something profound. It it acts by its very life-givingness as a voice of condemnation to those who refuse to follow the words of God spoken through the prophet. Now, why this is hard for us, I think, is because we're like a Western proof-like kind of people. Like, Like we want proof. And so all those good things that we see Elisha doing become these ways of like proving to us like, oh, this is how it is. But when it has this negative like backwards effect, we then struggle. What we're seeing play out is the Lord is faithful to his word. Over, over 10 chapters have happened between the mention of Hazael and this one. Many years have happened. And it comes at the hand of Elisha, not Elisha. And the word is fulfilled. I charged you with trusting God's word. As you approach this text, trusting God at his word. His word is faithful. It will accomplish what it says it will accomplish. Now second, notice the Lord defends his prophet, the man of God. Remember, what we read last week is Jehoram threatens Elisha. Now this is important because the events told in 2 Kings 6 through 8 mirror the events of 1 Kings 18 and 19. Again, we've talked about this in this text, but this is deja vu. I preached to you about deja vu being this thing. Don't forget to remember. That's what deja vu does. Don't forget to remember. Both Elisha and Elijah have come, uh, these texts end in a famine. Both texts feature Elijah and Elisha threatened. Elijah's threatened by Jezebel. Elisha by Jehoram. Both leave Israel. Elijah goes to Sinai. Elisha goes to Damascus. And in both texts, both prophets are told, 
to anoint Hazael and Jehu. Now, this is a decisive attack on the heads of the prophets. Why now? That's why now. The prophet's ministry cuts Israel in two. It it divides sons from fathers and daughters from mothers, princes from prophets. In cutting in two, it in one way kills it. So something new can be risen in its place. Remember, this is what we said when we embarked on this series. First and second kings and the stories of Elijah and Elisha are stories of judgment. They're stories about the death of Israel, but they're also stories about resurrection because God intends for new life to come out of this history. New life comes first in the remnant who were returned to the land, those who would have been reading this text in exile. The the remnant will produce the Messiah, Jesus. I've been watching uh, The Chosen. And one of the things I love about those episodes in the first season is all the anticipation the watchfulness of the disciples and the way they portray that during this second temple Judaism period for the Messiah to come. And of course, that too is misunderstood, right? Now, Jesus' ministry of healing, redemption, salvation also upsets the hierarchies of his day, both for Jew and Gentile. Like we talked about last week, Jesus reverses them. Insiders become outsiders. Outsiders become insiders. I love the portrayal of Matthew and the chosen, the the ultimate outsider who Christ gives reversal to. Make no mistake, this cuts our sentimentality to shreds. Jesus will tell these same disciples, Jesus will now, not the Old Testament God, Jesus the God of old and new, says the following. He says to his disciples that they will be driven like Elisha and Elisha to caves, that they will have to be like their rabbi Jesus who will suffer. He says the disciple is not above the teacher. And then he tells them, but have no fear for for nothing that is covered will not be revealed and nothing that is hidden will not be known. I love this because our two anointings And this text take place in secret. The the word of prophecy comes out of hiding. Jesus, like Elisha, will be revealed to have a ministry of life that does, in fact, bring judgment and reversal. Jesus continues, Do you not know that not a hair can fall from your head? Precious disciples, without God, your Father knowing? Don't fear men. Fear him talking about himself and God the Father, who can destroy body and soul in hell. For those who acknowledge me, Jesus, the hidden Messiah before men, will also be acknowledged by my Father in heaven. And then he adds, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come, Jesus says, to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is Jesus. Yes, healing. Yes, tenderness. 
Yes, compassion and love and life, but also division. Insiders made outsiders. Outsiders made insiders. And that move is a forceful act to insiders and outsiders, y'all. So what do we do with Hazael and later Jehu? Well, the implication of this text, to those who are in exile, trust God and cling to his word. Trust God in his providential hand of grace and judgment. Trust God in his dividing of sheep and goats. Even while the call goes out to all, only his sheep hear his voice. But the voice divides just the same. No fearful avoidance. No separating God's word, old from new. No red-letter Bibles where Jesus' words are somehow elevated and extracted. Also, also hear me, no ubermensch, no supermen, no hero men. That term comes from Nietzsche. But no enacting vengeance on Yahweh's behalf. Both Hazael and Jehu are instruments selected by God for a specific purpose. We are not them. We are not those chosen instruments. Christians are to refuse to take vengeance because vengeance is God's work. When Christians refuse to take it, they leave room for God's wrath, Paul says. They also leave room for the governing authorities, unjust and unrighteous as they are, to be empowered with the sword to avenge. In fact, while they are, there are instruments of judgment and justice, our job is to pray. Our job is to resist the forces of evil and to subvert them by our very own bodies through sacrificial love. Our job is not to avenge. We lay down our lives, for the servant is not above his master. Yahweh pronounces judgment, and then he delays. And the delay gives time for the sins of Ahab and his house to ripen. It gives time for Elisha to form a community that will serve as the seedbed of renewal in Israel. And we have this same pattern in Jesus. Jesus declares the temple and in Jerusalem, are, and with her are doomed. He, he turns over tables. He drives out the money changers with whips and cords. He declares the temple will be a house of prayer for the nations, not a place of injustice and division. And in so doing, Jesus will be given over to the religious leaders and the Romans, the state, and he will be crucified. And there's delay, first for the disciples and the apostles and the early church leaders so that they might be gathered in. And then when the temple falls in AD 70, and now we are in the middle of a second delay. So all the ethno-linguistic peoples can be gathered in. So trusting in God's word then is not neglecting to do good while it's today. It's to not grow weary in doing what is right offering words of life and deeds of mercy, but trusting that God will return and bring judgment and justice. 
And this trusting involves waiting. It involves what we, a term we call meekness. Like meekness is power restrained. It's not taking measure into your own hands, but waiting on the Lord because you trust in his word. And he is the Lord. Not just of uh, his, being the Lord of love means he is the Lord of both judgment and of vengeance. So what do we do with these words? We don't get sentimental. We, we don't avoid them. We, we don't separate them. We, we don't take matters into our own hands, but we trust. And our trust looks like watching, waiting, praying, and doing good in word and deed. Second, what do we do with these words? Well, we weep over it. The anointing of Hazael leads to the fall of Israel, and that fall, we're told, is severe. It's violent. There's this awkward moment, right? Elisha just stares at Haziel, who he is anointing to be this king of vengeance and destruction. Everyone starts to get uncomfortable. The readers, we do. And so does Haziel. He stared with them, we're told, until he was embarrassed. And then Elijah wept. Why do you weep, my Lord? Because of the evil you will do to the people of Israel. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine Elisha anointing this one who will set fire to his, the people's homes, who, who will kill some of the sons of the prophets, young men, children, pregnant women. You will do this because you're going to be king. Elijah weeps over that death and what the death will produce. But we're told in the Bible that this death will lead to a type of resurrection. Israel's fall will lead to Yahweh extending his call of grace to the nations, to the Gentiles. Israel's fall leads to riches for the rest of the world. This is what Paul alludes to. We you know, last year, before more than that, we were in Romans. We talked about Romans 11. The Lord will raise up a new branch that will be melded to Israel. And both will be his very special people. This happens because this happens. What do we do with the wickedness and the injustice and the retrib- retributed justice for, for such things? What do we do with the idolatry of our day? with the mutilization of minds and bodies that are happening in our day, what do we do about our sin as the people of God? What do we do? We weep. Church, we weep. We, we, we lament that the children are sacrificed to our own molex, that our Young men are enraged and aroused to violence. That young women are treated with such objectivity and violence done to them and to their bodies. That the old are left forgotten. That we divide not over Jesus as much as we divide over left and right, red and blue, Caesar and kings and presidents and parliaments and representatives. That we, we lament the rising tide of avengers, and the growing number of men and women confused 
and untrusting in how God made them? Do we weep? Do we weep as much as we pontificate? Do we weep more than we judge? Jesus wept. We're told he wept over Israel. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem in Luke 19, like Luke is a story about his journey to Israel for the mission that he, he talks about on the Mount of tri- tribu- uh, Transfiguration with who? Elijah and Moses. He says, the time for my departure is at hand. And that departure is him going to Jerusalem to go to a cross. When he arrives at Jerusalem and he sets his eyes on her, where he will be crucified, he weeps. He weeps over her. He weeps over his people. He he weeps over the people that he made. The people that he formed for himself. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah first. He weeps. Would you had known on this day the things that would make for peace, he says. But they are now hidden. Again, that theme here. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, O Jerusalem, and surround you and hem you in in every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Just like Elisha, Jesus weeps for Israel for the judgment that will fall upon her. He is speaking here about his rejection as Messiah, but also about the the upcoming fall of Jerusalem in 87, 70, when Jerusalem is leveled to the ground. And all of that is used by God for the rescue of people who did not know his name and the Gentiles. Jesus also wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept for Mary and Martha. He he weeps there for all the human race. Everyone that's subjected to the same kind of death that Lazarus is subjected to. He weeps for the loss and the sadness and the grief. But in that weeping, that word for wept there, there's this undercurrent of meaning his nostrils were, were basically being told are flared. The image is a war horse readying himself for battle. Jesus weeping because he's going to enter into it. We will weep and lament. Judgment that falls not just on us, but around us. To the wider us. We're told in the Bible, judgment starts where? with the household of God. Will we weep for it? Will we weep about all the, I just got done watching the Hillsong documentary. Will we weep 
for all the abuse that we've caused. The church. Will we weep? Will we grieve about the world? About the turning over the world to desires of their heart and God passing over them and letting them have what they want. Will we grieve it? I know it feels better to enact our own violence, to cast stones in words that tear. It feels more powerful to announce the day of God's judgment than to stare into the eyes of our friends and our neighbors and our children and their stories and weep. Or to stand in front of the mirror. And instead of saying harsh words to yourself, just looking in the mirror and weeping. Elisha weeps over the judgment and the people. Jesus weeps over the judgment and the people. Paul, we're told, weeps over his churches and their troubles and all the loss. Will we? Do we weep? Last Look to Jesus. To get there, I want to consider the second anointing in our text. The judgment that's told, foretold in 1 Kings is fulfilled in 2 Kings 9 and 10. We're told in verses 11, 17, 19, 22, Jehu doesn't come in peace. His name actually means Yahweh judges. Jehu's work of vengeance begins in secret, he, he enters a house, he's anointed behind closed doors, but what happens in secret, just like the other parts of this, this story, both in the present and the future, will soon be made open. Now, I want us to make some connections, but, and these connections, I think, are difficult. I think we get Elisha as a type of Christ, but Jehu? Jehu will confront the house of Ahab like Jesus confronts Herod's house. He will condemn the temple of Jerusalem as being no better than the house of Baal. We are told that zeal for the house of Yahweh is what eats Jehu up inside. The same thing is said, of course, of the Messiah in Psalm 69.9 and also of Jesus. His disciples remembered what is writ was written about the Messiah. Zeal for thine house has eaten me up. Zeal will consume the Messiah. Passion for God's house will consume him. In Matthew, we hear the words, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken a part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets." Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape the judgment that's to come? In Kings, three main kings are anointed. Solomon, the temple builder. Joash, the temple reformer. And Jehu, the temple destroyer. And Christ is a fulfillment of all three. Jehu is the only king in the north that's anointed. 
Jehu will be like Jesus. He will avenge the the blood of the prophets. And nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible do subjects lay down their garments for a king. A scene that will repeat itself on Palm Sunday when branches and coats are laid down for Jesus. You see, Jehu is a figure of Christ. He brings deliverance from Ahab and his descendants to the faithful Israel gathered around Elijah. He destroys idols. He tears down false worship in Israel. He avenges the name of the Lord and the blood of the prophets in the death of Jezebel, the descendants of Ahab, the prophets of Baal. Jehu makes peace and rest through atoning vengeance. Jehu fulfills his role as kinsman redeemer by avenging the blood of Yahweh's prophets. The wicked are judged, and for a moment, there will be peace and renewal in the land. The judgment of God falls, we're told later, upon Jesus. After a week of being welcomed to Jerusalem as king, that judgment comes through the Roman instrument of the cross. It comes at the hands of the state. It comes at the hands of his very own people, the same people he weeps over. It is in this way that Jesus will enter into war, flared nostrils, not judgment falling outside of him, but upon him. It is in this way that Jesus will undo death, It is in this way he will become a light to the nations. It is in this hidden thing, this cursed thing, that Messiah will ultimately be known. Because by it, atonement comes. Jesus' blood alone that cleanses us from all sin. And because by it, the vindication of resurrection comes. Not only is sin undone by the Roman cross, so too is death. Jesus' victory comes in dying. And in dying, and in then being raised... Jesus is obedient all the way. What Israel could not do in the land, what Jehu could not do by his vengeance, Jesus does. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is one of us, a human, feeling what we are feeling, experiencing what we are experiencing, yet without sin. He is our redeemer. He buys us back from the devil by his very own body. This Jesus is ascended. He is reigning by the Spirit who inhabits our lives. He changes hearts. He renews us. He brings life. And in bringing life, he brings judgment on the world. We read in John 12, 31, speaking of his death on the cross, know this is the judgment of the world. Through the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to himself. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. And all of this is anticipation of what's foretold in Revelation. The judgment in John's vision that falls upon the beast, who is the state, the false prophet, and the harlot. Right, The harlot is the world system that sets itself up against God. The, the beast is the state and all its power enacted and aimed against Christ and his anointed. The false prophet is the church. Allured as she is by the world and the state to share a gospel of a sentimental, non-judging Jesus who shares a, a gospel of an only judgment Jesus. A, a church who aligns itself with the state and creates American Jesuses. 
or Jesus who's, who are only gentle and mild, or, or Jesus who are separated from Israel and non-Jew, or Jesus who is molded and made like the idols we worship, blessing us for killing the poor, blessing us for martyring those who witness to the true Jesus through their bodies and their blood. Revelation tells us Jesus is the avenger of those martyrs. He's the avenger riding on a white horse, undoing all the ways the world sets itself up against God, toppling the religious who draw lines and hold signs that say keep out. And those religious in our day are both Christian, other world religions, and secular. And here's what this means. We're almost done. I know these last few sermons have been really long. This is what this means. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. Or he can be. If you've been victimized, so too is Jesus. He was nailed to a cross to free you from those who oppress you. Not by in that moment taking vengeance into his own hands and calling down the angels but by waiting upon him who will set things right and will ultimately bring justice. This isn't, there is no sentimental ubermensch American hero savior for those who have been undone by violence. For those who have been torn apart by sin, whether their own or another, Jesus has violence done to him to undo the way of violence in the world. There is also no sentimental saviors for perpetrators, Those who enact violence can only find redemption in the blood of Jesus. But hear this. Salvation can even be promised to them. And this is good news in a world stock full of oppressors. In a world where victims become the next oppressor. Only Jesus can save and deliver us from such things. And this salvation is found where? In the cross. In the undoing of evil and sin and in the fullness of the new heavens and new earth. And Jehu is a foretaste. He's complete in his vengeance, y'all. He, he brings a peace. What, but Jehu can't bring peace forever. I love the wordplay. Later on in the text, we didn't read it, but do you come in peace as Jehu approaches Jehoram, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the king of Judah? Is it peace? Is it peace, they say. And he says, what do you have to do with peace? And it happens two more times, ending, what peace can there be as long as the sins of Jezebel are so many? Jehu can't bring lasting peace, but Jesus can. Only Jesus can rescue us from our enemies and say, weep no more, for the Lion of Judah has conquered. Jehu is a type, but only Jesus can bring true and lasting peace. The lion is also a lamb who has been slain. God has revealed himself where we least expect to find him. Jesus lays down his life to bring and end the world order of vengeance and violence. This is the way the cross condemns the world. Jesus is the lion-like lamb who defeats death by taking on death himself. He is the lamb-like lion who alone can set you and I, the captives, free.
Let's pray. God, help us. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot, a lot. Drinking from a fire hydrant, a lot. But one thing is certain. Your son Jesus has secured our way to God. Your son Jesus has made a way for peace. Peace with God. Peace with our neighbor. Peace internally to ourselves. Peace with our world. And yet, we must wait for that in fullness in the now. There is a not yet. We live in a world that's still stock full of victims and oppressors of sin and death and violence, vengeance that's taken out over fights over a movie theater seat. That's our world. It's condemned by your cross. And so help us to be a people who watch and pray, who believe your words to be true, but also help us to be a people who, who lay down our lives. Unafraid, because you tell us not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our God and Father knowing it. Help us to be a people who weep over all of this as we wait, trusting that you are this redeemer who rescues because we can't rescue ourselves. There is no hero that lies within us. You are our only hope. So we cast ourselves upon you again this morning, waiting and hoping in you, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.